0: Hi, I'm Anthony Taylor, and welcome to season two of the Mental Fitness Podcast, the podcast where you're going to hear from a fantastic range of people about their personal stories and ideas on how to live a great life and look after your mental fitness while doing it. You're going to learn about resilience, emotional intelligence, how to identify our strengths and what we can do to support our good mental health. Here's a snapshot of what we've got in store for you this week.
1: What we say to ourselves, our self-talk, and what we then, how we believe in ourselves, then influences the, the who we are and, and what we do from a day-to-day basis, right? You know, as we say somewhere between thirty to 50,000 words in a day, consciously and subconsciously, or rather unconsciously, that 80% of those thoughts are, are negative. Well, if 80% of our thoughts are negative, that becomes the soundtrack of how our belief system and, and what we say to ourselves then Ultimately, the likelihood that we're going to be successful or perform optimally is a lot less likely.
0: So I'm really excited to be bringing you Series 2, and I hope you join us throughout the entirety of this. And as ever, if you like the podcast, please give us a like uh, or subscribe to the show as well. It takes just a minute, but it's going to help the podcast reach more people. Okay, let's crack on with the show. So today I'm really excited to be joined by retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Andy Reese. He is also now the mental skills coach for the Cincinnati Reds Major League Baseball team. Um, He's also worked a lot with a lot of NFL clients like the New York York Jets, Las Vegas Raiders, et cetera. Uh, Originally from California, Andy is an Eagle Scout, a West Point graduate, and a former Army football player spent over 20 years in the military and served tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and also spent five years with two elite special forces units. He is also the author of Deliberate Discomfort, How U.S. Special Operations Forces Overcome Fear and Dare to Win by Getting Comfortable Being Uncomfortable.
1: Andy, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Anthony.
0: Thanks very much for coming on. Andy, I'm going to start with a question that I ask all my guests, which is, what does mental fitness mean to you?
1: It's a, it's a great one. And we probably could spend a a good hour talking about that too. Well, I think mental fitness for me really is spans a spectrum across psychology, which is, you know, attitudes and and behaviors or, you know, how we think and what we do and and not do. And that really encompasses this, this bridge, if you will, to use a metaphor from, you know, dealing things with mental health, you know, with identifying and and treating uh, pathological signs or symptoms um, things like, you know, obviously anxiety and depression and post-traumatic stress, uh, which obviously are prevalent with veterans, but also moving along that spectrum towards the middle, you know, would be, you know, having to deal with coping and resilience and things with grit. And these are mental skills that are preventative, right? So we talk about uh, they're more in line with the traditional counseling, um, even even therapy, for example. And then moving to the right of that spectrum, you have to deal with that mental performance and that is uh you know your ability to be able to execute tasks at the upper end of your potential consistently regardless of the circumstances which is more in line kind of with the mental toughness definition and when you you spring those together in a bridge that spans the whole psychological continuum and you know in a word you know mental fitness you know connects health prevention and performance to, to help people and teams be at their best when it matters the most
0: i really like that bridge metaphor like you said across the whole psychological spectrum and I think that's for me why I'm really fascinated and, and work with a lot of clients around this because you know my clients and the people I work with, and I think the people listening to this podcast aren't elite athletes. We are just everyday people trying to do the best we can in a difficult world with demanding jobs and juggling families and all those kind of things. But in many ways, I think we, we can see ourselves as, as office or corporate athletes. So I think you know, it's really useful for us to spend as much time on the mental game as elite athletes do as well.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with it. Too. I love the corporate athlete model. I think it was, you know, Jim Lair and um, and others, you know, obviously Peter Cloud, who developed mental toughness. Uh, shout out to him and to uh, Doug with AQR International. I know we're both aligned with them as far as mental toughness coaches. You know, but would they, when you look at that moniker, you know, so you know, and I look at the same thing too when I, when I take the best practices of Special Operations Forces, you know, whether it be like the SAS or, commandos or working with our forces you know when you look at these elite populations and you you said you try to translate those skills to the to the average joe so to speak you know oftentimes they're like well i'm not elite right you know the idea is that what if you thought and behaved and trained how you plan prepare and execute and assess your performances everything from the mundane things like you know, when, when you show up after work, you know, when you engage your kids, your family, your loved ones, you know, what are the performances at work when you got to be give, a, give a, engage your teammates, you give a pitch when you're, you know, trying to secure clients with, you know, maybe an upsell. What if we treated all those performances the way we thought and the way we behave like elite athletes do? Not necessarily to maybe that level, but, but what if we added those best practices to our toolkit, which are transferable, you know, how much better could we be over time? And I think that's, the idea and the fact that they're transferable amongst these arenas is just really fascinating to me. And I love that cross-pollinization, um, you know, within our field that we work in.
0: I first, well, what attracted me to getting you on the show was I listened to you on another podcast. And you were talking about mental toughness and we're talking about character strengths, which we'll come on to. How did you first come across this concept of the mental toughness, the four C's model that we both know and work with? And what attracted you to, to using
1: that? I've had a lot of personal experience, a, and I kind of came into this field just like you did, you know, later in life after I went through a lot of personal experiences and exploration. To me, that just was going through the forty-seven-month crucible that is uh, that is West and Your your folks in the UK, that the equivalent obviously would be a Sandhurst, and being you know an, an elite you know collegiate uh, American football player and going through the struggles of going to an, an Ivy League equivalent uh, academic institution, taking you know. Uh, two to three credit hours that a normal student would have and then having all my military duties you know preparing to become an army leader and then you know I found a unique center called the army center or so the West Point Center for enhanced performance which which brought in the best practices of sport and performance psychology into the U.S. military and then it started to expand from there as graduates uh, went out and started to demand those services especially after 9-11 just because as you know everyone can relate our, our life fundamentally changed and the way that we trained and uh, manned equipped and fought these asymmetric battles against uh, an enemy that, you know, didn't fight fair and used our, you know, what our technological and our, even our overwhelming firepower advantages a- against us, you know, through uh, moving through the people. And then obviously, you know, through roadside bombs and through using a network effect to, to be basically counter us. I, you know, when I, Encountered those uh, unique mental and emotional and social challenges, you know, we were at that point in time in the U.S. Army, we had not adopted this mental fitness concept uh, in terms of how we train and educate our leaders, let alone our everyday soldiers. And so, I fell back on what I'd learned at West Point, and you know, uh, and you know, to me, why I stayed in the military is I, I'm a team sport guy. I always loved team sports, and. Uh, and obviously performance competition was a part of who I was and am still today. To me, being in the military, especially in the last 20 years has been the ultimate team sport. I think combat's the ultimate um, individual team performance where the States are at its highest, where your life is on the line and your soldiers who, who are you responsible for America's sons and daughters, uh, England's sons and daughters. We have that great responsibility that, that is a great burden, but also is a tremendous gift. So to me, the ability to train myself uh, on those mental toughness skills, not only on just how to survive but how, and how to cope, but how to thrive when in these volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous environments where we weren't really trained and prepared for what we we're going to do. So how do you adapt and overcome to that? And to me, I think mental and emotional skills across that spectrum allow you to be able to make those adjustments, make you know better decisions in real time, help you have poise and composure on extreme circumstances, help you concentrate and have better situational awareness help you stay goal oriented and motivated. And then inevitably when you, you encounter setbacks, you were, you were more resilient, you're grittier over time. And you can, you know, the likelihood that you can experience things after you redeploy, like, you know, post-traumatic growth increase because you have that skill set. And to me that when that all came together um, as the army started to adopt that and being lucky enough to be at the epicenter of that through uh, holistic fitness programs and to be one of the Army's first resilience trainers um, along those lines was really a watershed moment. And then finally then to, you know, work with um, special forces in this elite tactical athlete concept and to treat them, uh, their teams, and their individuals um, just like elite athletes that I now work with in Major League Baseball or previously in the NFL. Um, To me, you know, how those worlds came together um, was both as an individual – a person who experienced that but then as a practitioner and a program manager and a leader um, really you know define my life's purpose and, and what i'm all about today and that's that's to be a coach
0: one of the things i find sometimes here in the uk when i talk about mental toughness is the wall of uh, assumptions that people make to that term they, oh it's all about big biceps and bulb, and you know it's a gung-ho macho type of thing and it really isn't is it you know when we think about mental toughness and actually what it is which is a personality trait that describes how we respond to stress pressure and challenge it really looks at how we think doesn't it it's you know it's that mental side of it it's not just about the sort of the big biceps and balls the macho image how do you find people relate to that concept and that term do you have any issues with it and how do you overcome them and get them to, to buy into understanding it
1: yeah yeah and, and just to circle back too because i um i realized i didn't completely answer your question the 14 model i think um was were if all models were somehow flawed there wasn't what you and i found is you know a, a one model that i could hang my hat on that brought together all these different concepts across that spectrum of mental fitness and then a good friend of mine dr michael gerson shout out to him um, he introduced this 4C model to me and then I started really getting into it. I added a 5C on that too. But to me, it's just, uh, it's simple, it's useful, it's applicable, it resonates with multiple audiences. But I think for me to answer the, this, your most recent question was that I think there is there is stigma associated with anything with the word mental. I think, you know, going back to the military example, you know, coming up in the the, the Army in the early 2000s, you know, we didn't even say anything mental. There was such a, such a hardcore stigma, we called it behavioral health. Right. So, you know, and we weren't talking about this in the open as far as, you know, um, mental skills that were designed to help me perform better as a leader and as a soldier, you know, on and off the battlefield. Right. So I think that the idea like you said, mental toughness is probably more aligned with, you know, on the performance and prevention side of things too. Whereas the same thing on the health side is more like having to do with pathology to prevention in there too. So, I, I think that if I, if I were to choose something that has the least stigma, I think mental toughness is what resonates with me personally just because that's what I, as being, you know, a guy who, was, who came up on that macho culture in, in the Army and, and I was an Army fullback and a, a football player to me. But this idea of mental toughness is a concept that every coach that, you know, whether, wherever you are, uh, talks about, you know, every leader and coach talks about mental toughness. They can relate to that, right? So whether that's good or bad, you know, that's a common lexicon, right? And my good friends uh, at Arcadia Cognarati, up to them talk about street language and about meeting people where they're at, you know? And so in order to be able to help understand and then shift behaviors, you know, how, no matter how entrenched they are, you have to meet people where they're at. And so I think you have to use a common language that people can relate to. And so they have some sort of stigma associated with it too. It's where it's like, okay, I say mental toughness, there's a file associated with that. And I just think that mental toughness uh, has a lot of uh, good stickiness to it. And then it creates an ability to work. Some some people have some sort of frame of reference as far as what that means to them. And then we as coaches and as teachers then have the opportunity to then really shape and mold that into what it actually is. You know, so meeting people where they're at, making it simple with a 4C model does a great job of that, too. You know, it's very easy and chunked up into four or five things it's easy for the brain to remember you know it has a common language that they are all start with c which sometimes gets confusing even i you know get confused with what with those four c's are you know i start to rattle them off you know and I'm like, what was the fourth c did i did i say that again did i repeat the one again i don't know if you find the same thing
0: yeah I count them on my fingers <laughs>
1: yeah yeah exactly exactly but you know i i think the stickiness uh, aspect of mental toughness is what really resonates with me um, and I think we get to be able to then shape the narrative for, uh, our, our tactical athletes or corporate athletes or elite athletes and, and a whole bunch of different arenas.
0: Hmm. So you mentioned earlier on, you talked about, you know, you added a fifth seat. Tell me more about what that is.
1: Part of my upbringing, obviously was going, going to the U S military Academy, a big part of our curriculum. And I've been saying Hurst is the same way is that we have a, an honor code there and character development is a deliberate and intentional part uh, of our curriculum. Um, at the U.S. Military Academy, right? You know, and the honor code is a cadet will not lie, cheat or steal or tolerate those who do. And ironically, you know, another senior military college took the traditional one, which there's five in the U.S. and one of them is Texas A&M University where I teach now um, in the off season. You know, they also had the same honor code and they adopted that from West Point. And so the, uh, the Simon Center um, and then also the Army uh, adopted Rich Large's character development uh, content and curriculum. To be able to help leaders specifically you know be able to make better moral and ethical decisions you know in and out of combat right so the idea is when you know graduates of west point are, are designed to be you know to be leaders of character for service to our nation right and so how do you do that well you can't leave that to chance right you know but there is an underpinning that comes from um how we're raised and depending on our worldview and the circumstance of the environment the people we've been exposed to the learned behaviors we have shape our value system or a set of principles. And I know we're going to get into that too. And that kind of, that set of uh, principles then creates this lens in which we are in our belief system, which with how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we define what happens to us, what's a good, you know, who's, what's good or bad, um, you know, and in terms of, um, you know, what's right or wrong and how we go about our world. And that's, those things are critical to our identity um, and, and I think character is oftentimes uh, misdescribed um, and misunderstood as well too like it's I think mental toughness and character sometimes get mistaken for each other but to me I think that the character piece is really underpinned to uh, values, uh, beliefs, uh, purpose that are all part of your identity as human being through a set of attitudes and behaviors that are really the foundation of, of who we are as individuals and, and furthermore who we are as teams and organizations and I a lot of the literature that, you know, Adam Grant talks about, um, you know, about, hey, companies that live their values, that have a set of values that are easy to understand and are connected to individual values of their members are more likely to perform better and, you know, be more productive, have low turnover and other uh, uh, positive benefits that are, that are good for our companies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I see that a lot with different organizations. And, and like you say, when people are really clear about their values and how they live them and also what are some of the behaviors that are not congruent with those values and we try and stamp those out or you know educate people to behave in a different way that is you see that people are so much more engaged they're happier they're more fulfilled i think you're right when we when we behave in ways that go against our values then that creates that cognitive dissonance doesn't it that uncomfortable feeling we experience and we can't keep that up for a while it you know it eats away at you if you're not careful
1: no you're right yeah and that cognitive dissonance too as i say is is also something that, you know, it's not good or bad, it just is, and we can use that to our advantage sometimes when we face everyday decisions, you know, to where, you know, hey, you know, I'm walking on the street, and, you know, I see a piece of trash on the ground, or, you know, I'm in my neighborhood going for, taking the dog for a walk, this is a great one, taking the dog for a walk, you know, if, for those out there who have pets, you know, it's like, hey, you know, when my, you know, people leave, if you've seen dog turds all over the street, you know, where you are, you know, it's like, the, you know, who makes the decision, the little micro decision, whether or not I, I have the baggie with me and I pick the, 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 pick the doctorate up and then take it and find a trash receptacle and throw it away. Right. You know, well, what if that happens in that moment right there too, you know, when that either it's your dog or some other dog and you, you make a decision and whether or not, Hey, am I going to pick that up? You know, or am I going to in order to continue to move on without my day, those little micro decisions and choices happen all day, every day. And if we take a moment to become aware of that cognitive dissonance and to be able to sit with that, to be able to make the right decision at the right time and place, we'll then be able to help then create that neuroplasticity towards, you know, a, more, a better moral and ethical uh, way of being, you know, by me- sitting with that choice and making the right choice in those moments.
0: One thing I'm spending um, a lot more time on and using with clients is looking at character strength. And I know you've done a lot of work with the Veer Institute on the 24 character strengths and Chris Peterson and Marty Seligman and those guys. And what I really like about it is that it's peer reviewed research, you know, hundreds of articles built up over a couple of decades now of research around these 24 character strengths that we all have. And, and, you know, it's how we can use underuse them or overuse them or get them in the right zone. And what you, tell me what you, what you like about character strengths and why, why you got into using them. Like I say, you've done some work with the, the Veer Institute,
1: haven't you? I have, yeah. When you know, when I went through, worked with the University of Pennsylvania and uh, people like Dr. Martin Seligman and Dr. Karen Rivage, shout out to her. Uh, we got a chance to meet Dr. Chris Peterson, um, you know, as we were developing this resilience program for soldiers because there was more soldiers who were killing themselves at home back in 2009 than there were on the, the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. You know, so our, our senior leadership in the U.S. military and Department of Defense said, "Hey, we need to do something about this." University of Pennsylvania had a great uh, program that had a lot of efficacy all across the world, specifically fifth and sixth grade teachers. And so we, we were experimenting on how to be able to transfer these skills over to soldiers in the U.S. Army and then the U.S. Air Force. And so um, at the time, and, and we were using the VIA, and I got exposed to that. And I remember taking that, and it was really the first time where I had spent time to deliberately reflect on what my values were. Um, You know, I I had a great upbringing, you know, uh, I'm Roman Catholic. And so that obviously shapes my worldview as far as my belief system. And, you know, but I never really thought about uh, my values. And furthermore, you know, in 2002, the Army developed uh, their values, which is a leadership acronym, and it stands for loyalty, duty, respect, uh, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. So it's leadership, right? And I'll never forget when I was in uh, an accountability formation at the end of the day before we released for the work day, And, you know, one of our senior non-commissioned officers, you know, handed out these dog tags that had that leadership acronym on it. And you were supposed to put it on your identification tags or your dog tags and gave us this little business card that had leadership on it. And also on the backside, it had the soldier's creed and the war ethos built into that, too, which is putting those values into action, right? And so it it's, it's really powerful and it's a really cool example, uh, I think organizationally. You know, there's one point one million people in the US Army. It's a great example, but what we didn't do at that time that I saw was like it was like, okay, here, take this and then and then you're gonna memorize this. And this is part of what you what you need to do, you know, for we're gonna test this with our soldiers, so on and so forth, right? So it was more of a compliance model of of values, and you see that in the corporate world where it's like or even in athletics where it's like the coach decides, all right, these are what our team values are. I'm going to make a poster of them. I'm going to put them up in the locker room. You know, we've got some sort of fancy poster that we have a professional development session in the corporate setting. And we're going to say, it's very top down and very compliance based. I'm to like, here's our values. Right. But that's not how individual values work, let alone how to develop a more commitment based strategy towards inculcating and then living the values, your own values and your organizational values. So, I think what the, what the VIA did is it gave an evidence-based way of being able to take a survey, and it's relatively objective, and it gives you a, a mirror to look back at yourself too. And when I'm working with my clients, what I like them to do is, you know, I usually give them a list and I give them a reference, you know, or, you know, because some people somehow have, have a frame of reference, right? So I say, hey, you know, using, I want you to, to write down what your top three to five values are, what you think your values are. These are the principles that are the most important thing to you. And they're at the, at the foundation of who you are as a human being, not just, you know, a baseball player or a sales manager or, you know, a soldier, for example, but Hey, this is, this is who you are bigger than that, you know, and then we well, want you write those down. And I, then I want you to go, and I'm going to give you a list, you know, maybe for example, so me, I like to use the acceptance and commitment training or acceptance commitment therapy, Dr. Stephen Hayes the university of Nevada has a phenomenal resource. And so it gives a list, you know, of examples of values. And then you bounce your list off of that list You're like, okay, well, you know, I can, I can connect the dots there as well too. And then the third thing that I like to do time uh, dependent is then I like to have them take the via, right. And the via takes, you know, all but about 15 minutes to take, you know, and then it spits out a whole bunch of different values. Right. Um, what I like about that is that those, if you take the individual self-assessment, they connect the dots to a another set an example of a list, and then you overlay that on top of what the VIA results are, the likelihood that you're going to find alignment and then really refine that self-reflection exercise is really, really high. So that, those are the steps that I take too. What I don't like about the VIA personally is that it uh, I think it gives you too many values, right? And again, the brain likes to chunk information up. I like to use the rule of threes, three to five things is really easy to remember, and they're more likely to be sticky. That doesn't mean the rest are irrelevant. But what it does is that it provides you, and if you really kind of narrow down that list in terms of your top three or top five, and then give some agency to your client to then be able to say, all right, well, this is what the BIA says, but this is what I think. So I agree and I don't agree. And it it creates a conversation um, that I think is oftentimes missing. Uh, But again, it's the foundation of who we are and how we perform individually and as a team.
0: I really like it for many things that you've described and the fact that it sees all of them as strengths, and it's not that you know the ones down at the bottom are weaknesses. It's more that they're lesser strengths, and we have that capacity to say, well, okay. So, say for example that one of my weaker, lesser strengths is humor. How can I bring humor more into my daily interactions with people and start so you can get people to use some of that? How can I? And also, if you're overusing some, so I know for me that um, you know zest might be one of mine. So, how am I overusing zest sometimes? It, in my meetings or maybe I'm bringing a little bit too much energy into the meeting and I just need to maybe bring one forth, one of my other strengths, which might be say a little bit more, um, humility or a bit more around curiosity. So that would look like instead of me over dominating a meeting with lots of energy and, and jokes and things like that, actually, about how can we bring more curiosity into it? A bit of humility, giving other people a chance to speak and find a more appropriate outlet for my zest and my humour. So it's, and so yeah, everything becomes a strength. And what's interesting, I found recently talking to a client about his mental toughness scores, and I reframed his very, very high mental toughness. He's eights and nines out of 10, all the way down the line. So the downside is people are seeing him as a bit cold. And I said to him, well, okay, so that you're not, that's not a weakness for you, it's just an overplaying of your strength. And just reframing it in that way made a big difference to him in terms of, I think, not beating himself up as much. I think sometimes the language around how we're using strengths can really help as well. I don't know if you found that.
1: I love how you talked about both their the strength based, which is promotes a really easy conversation. We're not talking about weaknesses or even areas of improvement, but we also want to recognize that hey, there's a shadow side of the strength. The positive psychology is a great dog, which I love that that concept, right? So hey, this is if these are the primary, you know, um, ways and means that you know that. Or define who you are and what you're good at. Like, so for me, my three value, top three values, are competition, uh love, and service. Right, and lo- specifically, you know, love of uh, people and connection and and passion and empathy are all, all things that go along with a love. Competition is the co- the process of a continual improvement, and you know, necessarily about the outcome, but you know, that's about the process of continual improvement. Then, service is just giving, pouring into others, and giving to others, and definitely align with servant leadership right too well you know if you take the the shadow side of some of those things for example if you were to combine them and because they're interrelated and interdependent is that hey i I tend to be a pleaser and i don't like to disappoint people right and so i tend to say yes more oftentimes i say no that causes me to to select more than i necessarily have time or energy for and so then you can get overextended which is counterproductive to being a, a servant into you know being the best version of yourself so that you can then positively influence others right and so i think recognizing how those strengths are to my advantage and disadvantage and both can be productive and counterproductive are an important aspect of reevaluating your character strengths and how your value systems affect your beliefs because as we know and there's so many historical examples of this and we see this across especially the western world now is that we are more entrenched in our belief system than ever before, you know, whether it's the pandemic or politics or seeing things like climate change or whatever, you know, we're, human beings are, are fallible that way too, to where we can see so entrenched in our, in our, our values and our, our belief system that our lens really skews how we see ourselves and see others and see issues. Right. You know, and so to where you have people who still completely deny the fact that there was a global pandemic and that people are dying and that, Especially in the United States, and God love us, we're, we're Texas, we're we're independent to a fault, you know, to where hey, I, my my inalienable rights that I have as a U.S. citizen uh, trump the greater good of the society and spreading the pandemic, right? And so, and they make it a make it a political issue or religious issue, so and so forth. So I think that's an important for important for us to understand is that our strengths and belief systems are, are incredibly powerful for good and for bad reasons. And I think we have to understand that we have blind spots um, as much as we have, you know, things that may allow us to have uh, open, open eyes and open hearts towards specific issues and other people we work with.
0: One thing I like about mental toughness and the character strengths is it, when you work with clients on it is helping them get that clarity, that extra vision. And I think it's really important. Mental toughness without emotional intelligence and self-awareness can become a real problem, can't it? If it's too high. So, and even somebody who's more on the, what we describe as the more mentally sensitive end, once you raise their awareness to how they think differently from other people, now how that that at times can be a strength, but how sometimes that might be underused, you can then they can they've got a better chance at making a different choice, so they can maybe choose to behave like somebody who might be more mentally strong. But without that awareness of it, then you're not able to change behaviour.
1: Yeah, it's 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 spot on too. I think one of my criticisms of of my field, you know, of sports psychology, it tends to be very individual based in terms of the skill development. And then in terms of letting that skill out, you know, during performances rights. But I think ultimately, you know, especially in team sports, you know, you're, it's about influencing others towards common goals, right. And, and objectives. And so I think emotional intelligence does a great job that I love that in your model, you incorporate character strengths, mental toughness and emotional intelligence because as a leader, me, you know, a big area of my emphasis is the transferability of mental skills through leaders and, and through coaches, because they're the ones who are ultimately reinforcing these concepts. And if, and if we can make better leaders and coaches, you know, through mental skills, then the idea of emotional intelligence provides um, a really a context towards what I call the competencies of mental toughness, right? Which are, you know, self-awareness, uh, knowing yourself, self-regulation, being able to then taking the combinations like being the thermostat. I can read the temperature, my own temperature within myself, and the temperature outside of myself. I can then regulate myself, right? But beyond myself, I don't control a lot. So how do I have become more situationally and socially aware? Um, and then, then how do I influence? Because I can't control. I can only control myself, and very little I can control than myself. As a matter of fact, within my my brain and my as part of my body. But you know, if I control how I think and how I behave, you know, then I can then better influence others. And that way too. So when you add in those four core competencies, emotional intelligence, it just provides a really good recipe for me not only developing mental toughness with myself, but like you said, helping develop, uh, be a better teammate, being a better formal, informal, formal leader, being a better coach, uh, parent, um, you know, uh, friend, and it goes on and on in, in the social construct of, of how we live.
0: Yeah. One thing you mentioned earlier on was about how we see ourselves and our self image, and I think that's really important. Is I don't believe we can consistently outperform our self-image. So if I'm trying to be better as a manager, or as a leader, or whatever, if I don't, or if I'm a, you know, a, a junior athlete uh, in some discipline, if I don't see myself in the right way, I can't consistently outperform that. Um, how do you see that working with some of your, your, the athletes that you train and do you work with them on creating that strong self-image?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I would say, the number one barrier for the individual athletes that I work with um, is that, you know, especially in Major League Baseball right now too, has to do with confidence. Specifically, like let's break down self-confidence and task-specific confidence. So those two get confused, right? And and a lot of, there's a lot of misconceptions around the idea of confidence, which is, you know, inner belief in your uh, abilities. you know, And that's regardless of your level of confidence or ability to do something, right? And I always use the example of like, so task confidence may be able to shoot, move, and communicate in combat. It may be able to then be able to communicate effectively, to be able to read, write, and, and can communicate well within the, the corporate space. You know? And within baseball, that's the five tools, you know, the ability to hit, throw, and run, right? Those are kind of the things that they're often called the hard skills, right? You know, Which I don't think there's hard or soft skills. And if people say soft skills, I say, yeah, special operations forces skills, soft skills, right? Um, but I think for confidence, you know, that goes back to again, like what is the base of that too? And again, that has to do with your value system, and that's the anchor, uh, the base, the foundation if you're building a house too. That affects your beliefs. You're in your, your affirmation as far as what you say to yourself, and we all have this constant playlist that's going on in our head, you know, just like we have on our, our iPhones or whatever we use our devices to create playlists to play these um, these, these soundtracks of our lives, right? And these become the narratives. Of, what we say to ourselves, our self-talk, and what we then, how we believe in ourselves, then influences the, the, who we are and, and what we do from a day-to-day basis, right? It's, it's been overly stated that, you know, some, some research that I think needs to be updated. You know, as we say somewhere between thirty to 50,000 words in a day, consciously and subconsciously, or rather unconsciously, that 80% of those thoughts are, are negative. Well, if 80% of our thoughts are negative, that becomes the soundtrack of how our belief system and, and what we say to ourselves, then ultimately the likelihood that we're going to be successful or perform optimally is a lot less likely. So we become conscious about that soundtrack, right? And then you know that radio station that's playing in our ears, and then we we take control of it. We become our own DJ of what that sounds like, what those playlists are, what we say to ourselves, making sure that it taps into our belief and value system. Then that then becomes our dominant habit, right? And we can potentially flip the script in terms of productive self-talk that influences uh, how we see ourselves and how others see us you know so it's it's a it's a multilateral effect i think
0: so how do you work with people when you see that actually their self-image and that self-talk track is what's holding them back how do you get them to shift that and improve that
1: i mean the first one i mean going back to emotional intelligence and uh, you know the first it, it starts with the first core competence of mental toughness, right? Which is self-awareness, right? So you had to become aware of what are you, what are you saying to yourself in, in certain situations whether things are going bad or good? Is your, is your confidence tied to results rather than the process, which is very common because in baseball, it's very data driven. It's all about stats. It's very individually focused to be able to move up the ladder. Right. And so I think that, you know, when you're not getting the results, knowing that the game is built on failure, I mean, when you think about it, a Hall of Fame batting average is, is 300 or 30%. So in baseball, which gets harder, it's a very, very hard game as, as you move up the ladder within our minor league to our major league system, which is at the top rung on the ladder. And then to be able to stay there, you're going to fail far more often than you're going to succeed. It, it can really mess with you mentally, you know, and specifically when you, you know, get on a supposed hot streak or you get in a slump where you're not you're not hitting well, you're not pitching well. And that's that's the law of large numbers, and so I think one thing is just to put that in perspective too, and to say, hey, this is this is not a slump. Slumps live in your head. This is not a hot streak. This just happens to be you know a peak in the larger spectrum of things in terms of what your career is and what you've done up to this point too. So if I could get you to focus on the process and the outcomes, the way that you think about yourself, what you believe in yourself, how are you setting the conditions to get feedback from your coaches from your support network from your teammates to help reinforce those beliefs, knowing that they're not solely reliant on that too. When you can become self-reliant in terms of your confidence, no matter what happens, which is really tested and battle tested when things don't go well, and specifically when things don't go well consistently, right? That is the true test of your confidence. When you can continue to build confidence by bouncing back and just staying the course, knowing that a positive outcome is just around the corner. If I just double down, that that's a key thing too because a lot of times our novice athletes and you know or new athletes that aren't familiar with this they, they they go to something mechanical or more technical or tactical and so they they tend to tinker with things too much or overthink things as well too which you know they don't they don't trust themselves right in certain situations or certain moments especially when things don't go well and you don't, we don't trust yourself the likelihood you're going to let that skill out that you've developed is is more likely right and so when you understand the trusting mindset, it's something that you can train yourself to then not think as much, you know, so when the before and after is when you want to think a lot, when you're in the moment, you want to be able to let that skill out before and after you can bring that skill in and overthink and be critically analytical and judgmental. If you want to let that skill out? You have to embrace the trusty mindset or pattern of thinking that's more likely with more likely with no mindedness in the zone and flow states that are a little bit overrated because, you know, again, you know, we don't live our lives in the peaks and, you know, and I say optimal performance because that's getting the most out of what you have. And when you don't have your A game, how do you get it? And you have a C game for whatever reason to include luck, which is a factor that we have to account for. If you have a C game, right? You're just having a shitty day. Then how do you get a C plus? How do you get the most out of what you have? physically, mentally, tactically, socially, how you squeeze every single last drop out of what you have in that given moment, you know, where you are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the key, isn't it? It's like you said, how you can do that when things are going tough. And they like say it's divorcing yourself almost from the outcome. There's so much time that just builds up that extra pressure then. But if you stick to the process every time, then you're going to more often than not, that you're going to be able to behave a lot better.
1: Yeah. I don't think it would be some, I wouldn't say divorce yourself because I think that it's not binary. It's not process versus outcomes, right? Because outcomes matter, right? You know, we have certain KPIs or um, OKRs or whatever they are, you know, like in baseball is a great example of that too. My batting average, my velocity on my fastball, my on-base percentage, right? You know, if this is sales, for example, like, hey, my you know, am I hitting my quotas in terms of my client base too? Am I meeting the expectations of what my clients want for me in terms of customer service standpoint? Am I my growth pattern? You know, am I am I in a hockey stick or in the valley of death? Death? Whether I have a, I'm an entrepreneur. You know, the, the outcomes do matter a lot. It's just like we can't just solely focus in on outcomes, nor should we just solely focus in on process as well too. Because if we're doing the same things over and over again without getting the results, then that's, that's kind of the definition of insanity, right? You know, common saying, right? But I think when we have a nice balance of process and, and, and recognizing the outcomes do matter, that's when really the magic happens, I think.
0: Tell us a little bit about your book, Deliberate Discomfort. What can people expect from that? Where can they find it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. It. it was a fun project uh, through a company that uh, I'm still affiliated with and did a lot of work with previously in, in my career, it's, uh, especially on the consulting side. So the book is basically brings together the, the evidence-based best practices of uh, U.S. Special Operations Forces. So you think Army Green Berets, Army Rangers, uh, Navy SEALs, uh, Special Tactics Units in, in the U.S. Air Force. You know, our Delta Force was our lead counterterrorism unit. You know, the, the premise was that, hey, you know, we have this specific training, education, and development, you know, in terms of how they're assessed and selected and then developed and trained over a amount of time, and there's some universal constructs that are, you know, not secret sauce. They're, they're transferable to other other arenas. And as, you know, we move from being in the military, the elite units to the corporate space and to the athletic space, we notice, you know, there's a gap and vice versa as far as how we can bring best practices from those elite populations back to the military as well, too. So the idea was this through a story, uh, through 12 people. It's a fictional story, but it's based on real life people and their experiences in and out of combat. The idea is, you know, Jason Van Camp, who's the CEO at Mission Six Zero, is a brand new Special Forces team leader. And he's meeting all these amazing people that are going to be part of his team before they go on a deployment overseas. And through his going around and, and being told by his commander to go meet all these amazing real-life action heroes, as I call them, is he discovers through their experiences, all their knowledge and skills and experience that, uh, that make you elite and an optimal performer. Both individually and as a team, and it and it kind of goes across the spectrum for this idea of holistic fitness, and so and so each of the six domains of the mission six year model are explored twice all the across, across the the twelve chapters, and what I think the beautiful part about it, it's not just like your average book that you go to Heathrow or you go to go to the airport in Atlanta or something like that, and you pick up some book that has the by some Navy SEAL talking about you know that's motivational in nature and it's maybe self helpish. This is based on. Not just chest beating, you know, talking about how awesome I am, and you can be awesome too. Uh, it's it's hey, here's this amazing story of trials and tribulations, story they had to get really, really uncomfortable, and how they grew as a result of that. And then the back end is this amazing stable of uh, applied behavioral scientists from different disciplines that I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to work with and weave a thread through all across the book in terms of you know how do you how do you apply these to you. And how do you apply these to your team? Because they are transferable and applicable to you too. But how do you do that? So in effect, it becomes a manual of sorts. A how to uh, become mentally tough, uh, physically tough, socially, spiritually tough, um, in a deliberate, and intentional way by seeking uncomfortable things, uh, because that's the way to get better. And so I think it, it's, uh, it's definitely a philosophy that I've lived by my entire life. I identify strongly with it. I'm really, I'm really proud of it. It's done well. Um, You can find it on Amazon or wherever you you like to find books. There's an audio book version out as well, too. You can also check out Mission to Six Zero has a 60 day deliberate discomfort challenge, which is fully immersive event. It's it's generally remote, but it gives you a program to go by. It's had some really fantastic results. I have not done it yet. I do plan on doing it in October and, you know, encourage you you to do that as well, Anthony. And uh, to promote that, I think it's just going to be cool to experience that. But there's. There's a lot of great things going on with that company. And uh, I'm just personally passionate about bringing these worlds together and having been fortunate and blessed enough uh, to have been humbled in all these arenas is to help people get more in the arena. And when they get in the arena, be at their best when it matters more.
0: Andy, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you and to hear your thoughts on, you know, mental fitness, mental toughness, the importance of looking at our character strengths and our values, which I think is really underestimated in the field of personal development work as well. So it's been, a real pleasure, and uh, thank you for coming on. And good luck with the team later on today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Anthony, and uh, thanks to all your guests for tuning in. I Appreciate feedback, and if anybody wants to reach out to me, you can find me on social media. Um, you can find it on find me on LinkedIn. That's probably where my kung fu is the strongest. Uh, I'm still what I call a digital immigrant, and uh, was issued my green card by my teenagers, but I'm, I'm muddling through that. I'm also on Instagram under Coach uh, Coach Reese, and uh, reach out to me. Love to. You know, hear about what you all are doing and how uh, you're you're struggling, thriving and uh, performing optimally in, in the arena. So we'll, we'll see you all in the arena. Definitely, we will indeed. Cheers.
0: So as you know by now, this is the portion of the podcast where I quickly sum up some of the things that our guests have shared with us. And today, I think Andy has made um, four really interesting points that I wanted to reflect back on. The first, Andy was talking about how Working on our mental skills helps us deal with much of the uncertainty that we all face and can help us adjust, make decisions, and keep our poise while we go ahead and do that, do whatever it is we've got to work on. So I really like that that thing that he said. I also like the fact he talks very openly about there's still a stigma around this term mental. And we really need to get past that, I think. It just holds so many of us back as soon as we hear that term mental. So whatever we can do to... Break down that mental barrier, that stigma that we have around that term, I think we need to do. Thirdly, Andy talked about the importance of a code or what we might call our values and how they can help us develop our resilience and also um, how who we are and how we perform individually. Spending time thinking about our values, realising our values and our character strengths, those values in action is absolutely essential to getting the most out of ourselves in life, so I think spending time to do that is really important. And he also talked about and raised a really difficult point that you know we are so centered in our belief systems, uh, often that it distorts how we see ourselves and other people. You know, and it comes out in some of the language that people use and the beliefs that they have that their rights trump those of the wider community or the greater good and that, of that community, and and that's not the case. And sometimes our strengths and our belief systems are incredibly powerful, both for good and for bad reasons. And we have to take the time to understand the fact that we all have blind spots and to understand what those blind spots for each of us are. So I hope you really enjoyed that. I think a lot of great content, a lot of insight that Andy shared. I hope it sparks your interest in going to learn a lot more about values and character strengths and mental toughness as well. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you haven't already, subscribe it only takes a moment but it makes a massive difference to the visibility of the show and how many people we can reach you know our mission is to help people develop the mental fitness so that they can achieve more than they thought themselves capable of so it'd be great if you could do that a big thanks to charlotte foster podcast for her hard work on producing the show you can connect with her on linkedin and the music for the show is where to run by strength to last created by the musical talents of adrian walfer a canadian living in nashville Check out his music on Spotify and YouTube Music.